0: Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 63. Every single ecosystem for every single farm is always different. You're
1: listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hartich. On today's episode, we have Caleb Shank. He comes on sharing about his journey producing 100% grass-fed beef and pastured egg production. In 2017, he started with two cows and a bull, and now they have over 90 head of cattle, 170 egg layers, and they're managing over 200 acres. I think you'll enjoy it. First, instead of the 10 seconds about my farm, we're going to talk about the grazing grass community. We have made the decision to move the grazing grass community to a Facebook group. I have some reservations about that, but I think overall it'll improve access for everyone and it will be a good move. If you're currently a member of the grazing grass community, you will receive an invite for the new community on Facebook. And if you're not, we encourage you to join it. You can search for grazing grass community or go to facebook.com groups. Slash grazing grass. We hope to see you there and provide a platform for your questions for our communication for building our community. Next week, we have some exciting news to announce as well. But let's talk to Caleb today. Caleb, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We are excited you're here
0: today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Caleb, can you tell us a little bit about yourself
1: and your operation?
0: Sure. Yeah. So my wife and I, we started Deer Run Acres, which is our our farm back in 2017. There's always, you know, a little bit of give and take in a marriage. And I decided that I wanted to get cattle one week before we were due with our second child. So that was an interesting experience with, you know, trying to get fencing set up. and, And then, of course, the cows running away two days before she, was, was due. And it was it a was disaster, but a, a great way to start and a great way to strengthen your marriage anyways. So we've got two daughters, Hazel and Eden. They're eight and six right now. My wife and I, we also, besides for owning our farm, we own an interior design and product sales business for kitchen and bathroom modeling. And then we also just this last year started a Airbnb rental on one of our farm properties for basically an added income for the farm for resiliency, really. But there's a whole just lots of stuff that we that we do and that we get into grazing and grass fed beef and pasture raised poultry egg layers, that is, are the main things that I do. Well, let's
1: go from there. Let's let's talk about that decision to get some cows in 2017.
0: Did you have experience with cows? Did your wife have experience? Nope. So my wife grew up in the city. Well, suburbs. Erie, Pennsylvania is a very small city. It's about 250-ish thousand people. So it's not big by any stretch of the measure, but she grew up in the city. Both of her parents were school teachers. She did grow up on a dairy farm, but she hadn't been around that. And her, you know, her grandparents, my wife's grandparents didn't have the farm anymore when we met. But growing up, my mom was also raised on a dairy farm. And when I was younger, we lived in the country, but we didn't have any farmland or anything. We had, I think, four acres is what my parents owned at the time. And I did work for my cousins on a conventional dairy operation which basically was just doing hay in the summertime and milking cows and yeah all the fun jobs they did square bales you know i think everybody that's (laughs) that's done farming for conventional farming with square bales just knows the horrors of it it's you know 120 degrees in a hay mow, you're sweating like crazy and then you finish that up and you got to go be patient with cows for three hours as you milk them and it's just so, needless to say, I hated it. Yeah, I did not enjoy one bit of it. And I, you know, I never thought that I'd get into animals. And when we got married, we were living in the city in Erie. And my wife tells the story. I don't remember it how she came home from work one day. We had our one year old daughter at the time. And apparently I was just pacing, like walking laps around the house. And she's like, What are you doing? And I said, We need to get out of here. I can't live in the city anymore. And About six months later, we'd found a house, we'd sold our house, and we'd bought a place with 33 acres out in the country. And I don't know what it was. I just got this feeling in my my mind. It's like, you know, I need to get some animals. I want to get some cows. And so, I started trying to figure out stuff. And, you know, the first book I came across was Grass-Fed Cattle, which I know has been mentioned on your podcast before. But, I mean, it's a great book. And started doing fencing plans and trying to do water plans. And here's this, I mean, sure, I grew up in the country. I grew up around animals, but I didn't know the first thing. And So set up some small and got a few animals, and from there it grew very quickly.
1: Now, I believe you said you purchased two cows and a bull?
0: Yeah. Well, it was a a heifer, a cow with a calf, and then a few months later we got a bull. Oh, yes. And did you start out with Dexter's? I did, yeah. So I wanted something that was small. My wife was being the shoes from the city. She's like, I don't want big, scary animals. And, you know, I'd heard of Dexters in the past that they're, you know, pretty docile and they're smaller. I mean, as it turns out, I wouldn't say Dexters are more docile than any other breed of cattle. It depends on how you raise them. That's really what it comes down to. And sure, are they small? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a full-grown cow is only 800 pounds at max. Your bulls are 1,000, 1,100 if they're huge. So... They're, they're easy to handle because of that. You don't have to be as cautious. I guess I shouldn't say that, but you feel like you don't have to be as cautious when you're working around them because they're smaller, you know.
1: And when you brought those in, you said you'd already set up a few pastors. Did you immediately try rotating them?
0: How did that go? Well, as I said, they ran away. So that was my plan. My plan was to start rotating them right away. What I had set up is I had a three-acre pasture set up, and I, I divided it into 28 little tiny paddocks, all set up with permanent wire and lanes, and it was a disaster. I didn't know anything. I mean, this was back in 2017. There was no YouTube channels about using reels. I guess I didn't look at enough books or something. I only read that one, you know, the grass-fed cattle book and or grass-fed beef, and so I tried that, and it, I mean, it, it worked, but... Number one, 28 paddocks is not really enough. They're permanent. So it's rigid. I couldn't adjust it. I couldn't slow them down. I couldn't speed them up. I mean, it was, it is crazy. I mean, I think I had that pasture grazed down to nothing by September 15th. And then it's feeding hay until the next May. I mean, it was (laughs) the learning curve was strong with that one, but we made it through.
1: It is. But you, but you illustrate a point that's been brought up. So many times you just got to get started. You don't know what you don't know. And until you get out there and start doing it and in books, and we talk about books and resources all the time. And there's tons more out there now, like you had mentioned, but until you're out there doing it, and I'll be honest, I'm not very good. I'll, I'll do something better tomorrow. I try each day, but you, you've got to get started. And I think that's one of those, one of those essential features of it get started, then you'll learn.
0: Correct. Because you can think and overthink it. And the fact of the matter is too, is that I tell people now is that every single ecosystem for every single farm is always different. It doesn't matter if it's my neighbor down the road or if it's somebody in Missouri or whatever it is, you know, context is king. I mean, people talk about that all the time and you can't, you can't say enough about it. If you're not willing to jump in headfirst with both feet and make it work and figure it out, it's not going to work. And so you can read as much as you want, but you just got to get started somewhere. Like you said, I I agree 100%.
1: Yeah, I get that action in there. So when you purchased the Dexters, was your goal to produce grass-fed beef at the time?
0: Yes. Well, my first goal was to have a family milk cow my intention and I'm getting much better at this, but I always try to bite off way more than I can chew. Cause mm. I don't recognize my fallibility. Guilty as charged. Yeah. So, you know, at that time I was working 60 hours a week as a, as a sales and training manager at a furniture store. And then to try to take care of kids and try to take care of a house and try to be a husband and then try to do all that other stuff and milk a cow for, I mean, set up, milking cleanup every day you've got an hour into it it's like where does that time come from so I mean that I did that two milk shares for the calf you know with the cow and and sold that cow because I just was like I'm not I'm not doing milk anymore and somebody else that wants to do milk can have a trained milk cow now oh yeah there you go yes
1: your Dexter's you you start with your rigid paddock design had some growing pains there Tell us a little bit about your evolution to where you are now.
0: First winter, obviously, with just the four animals, found out that I needed way more pasture. I mean, three acres, obviously, is not enough. I mean, that's the thing. If people are listening to this podcast that, you know, want to get Dexter cattle or have Dexter cattle, they eat just as much as other cows. Like, people talk all the time, oh, you can have a Dexter and only have one acre of pasture per cow. And it's like, no, you can't. Not if you're trying to do it right, unless you want to feed hay eight months out of the year. So anyways, that spring, the next spring after feeding all that hay out, bought three more bred heifers and a couple steers and and started adding to the herd and we had calves. So the four animals the first year turned into 15. I'm a little bit choked up today because the, uh, the wildfires in Canada are blowing smoke over us right now. And it's holy cow. It's bad. I mean, I was out on top of the hill today putting in some shutoff valves in my buried water system. And I mean, I couldn't even hardly see my house, which is only a quarter mile away. It was, it's terrible. Anyways, so second year we got into 15 cattle and I fenced in a total of about 15 acres that year. So I still hadn't learned my lesson for more than an acre per head, but it kind of grew from there. And so that was 2018. Then in 2019, I fenced in an additional 25-ish acres, and then we ended up buying 50 more head, 30 cows and 20 steers. So again, I hadn't learned my lesson about having enough pasture. And right around that time, I bet I learned about Greg Judy and YouTube started coming out with, you know, regenerative ranchers and whatnot. And, you know, he talks all the time about leasing pasture and it's like, oh, I have all sorts of pasture around here that nobody uses. By the spring of the next year, I doubled my pasture size from essentially 40 acres up to about 85. And that's when things started getting a lot better. You know, you're getting 30 calves on the ground every year. Your herd grows so fast and you start- Oh yes. You know, you're butchering tons of animals. There's tons of turnover and you just need a lot of room to, to expand and grow. I mean, with that, all the ground around here, where we're at in in Edinburgh, in Erie County, Pennsylvania, this used to be huge dairy country. And I don't know what it is. It's the, A feeling that I have is that a lot of the dairy farmers around here, they didn't put a lot back into the ground. You know, there's, there's no lime in these pastures. They're incredibly degraded. That's been another really big struggle is just trying to find innovative ways to get the cattle... Enough feed, enough quality forage, so that they can grow, maintain, breed back every year. So it's that—that's kind of the growth, and and the, really the biggest struggle was was finding good quality feed and, and finding out how to feed them properly. So, and I guess I should say on top of that, I mean, being that we started this farm, we don't ever put our animals in barns. You know, that's another learning curve that you're trying to get through. Is is being in an area where we get 150 to 200 inches of snow every winter and finding out how to manage your herd through that incredible stress on them as well, using, you know, natural tree cover and different types of hay to feed at certain times so that they can, they can produce more heat inside their rumens.
1: When we talk about, so you mentioned where you're located. Let's talk about your
0: topography there. What kind of forages you have available? We're a little bit hilly, but most of the ground around here is very, very flat. In terms of the soil type is just straight hard clay. Once you get through, the most of the pastures only have or had when I started about two to three inches of topsoil at most, and then it was hard packed clay underneath that. You have good water retention in the clay, but a lot of times it's hard for those forages to utilize that stuff because they don't put roots down into that hard clay, it stays up in the topsoil. And so originally our summer slump was horrible. Most of the time, most farmers around here pretty much only have cool season grasses. I mean, here we are at the end of June. And as I was, you know, talking to you just before we started, it's like we had 70 degree days for the last 10 days. That was our top temperature. And so your your warm season grasses aren't growing. Your cool season grasses are growing. Well, coming up here in July, we're just going to have an incredible explosion of heat. It's going to be 85, 90 for the whole month, all the way through August and your cool season grasses aren't going to grow at all. So, I mean, in terms of general forages, what we get the, the most success from is is fescue is, is awesome. You oh, know, it yeah. grows year round. It stays green in the wintertime. I love fescue. If we got a lot of orchard grass, Timothy, those are kind of the, the big ones. But then what really fills in the pastures are lots of forbs being plantain, dandelions, curly dock is another one that, that grows here and there and, and the cows eat it. You know, they love it. So Kentucky bluegrass, rye grasses, those things. I mean, pretty much everyone has them, but majority of those, like I mentioned, they, they really are the cool season grasses. Fescue is kind of the one that crosses over and, and does well most of the time.
1: And when you started grazing your land and then leasing that land, have you added any or broadcast any seeds or no till anything in or... Yes.
0: I can't say much of it's worked. What I will say is worked is frost seeding clover while bale grazing is an incredible way to get legumes in your pastures. You know, I've tried, I tried no-tilling in some oats and rye gra- and annual rye. Didn't really take it all. Honestly, it was extremely expensive. And not a great return on investment. I mean, maybe if I paid more attention to you know making sure my pH is perfect and and getting it in at the exact time of the year, it'd probably work. But I can't say that I believe, in my context, that it would that it would pan out. We have such an incredible spring flush, and and then the other thing to be aware of is like where we are in Erie County, Pennsylvania. We get about a hundred inches of rain every year. I mean, we are so far from brittle, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, the biggest thing, I don't I don't have to worry so much about drought ever. I have to worry about making sure I can stockpile enough forage for the wintertime so that I can still move the cattle quickly and not pug my pastures. I mean, that that's the hardest thing is because we just get so much, so much rain. And I'm certainly not complaining about it. I'm very grateful for it, but it's, but having to learning how to deal with all of your unique challenges on your farm is, is difficult and it takes, it takes time.
1: One thing on that much
0: precipitation, how is that structured throughout the year? A lot of it comes in the wintertime. I mean, when I said before 150 to 250 inches of snow, I mean, 10 inches of snow in general equates to one inch of rain. But in the wintertime, we don't often have that snow actually on the ground. It's pretty rare when we have more than a foot and a half, two feet, because it comes in a fit and fury off Lake Erie, and then we get a warm spell, and it rains, and it melts. So most of our precipitation comes, I'd say, probably October through May, five to ten inches every month. In the summer, I was having some tractor time, cleaning up some pastures on some lease ground with a brush hog, and we got three inches of rain in 30 minutes. I mean, it was just a deluge. I'm so glad we have a cab tractor. Makes it much nicer to get caught out in that. Yeah. So most of the time, I mean, most of the rain is in the wintertime, which is exactly when I don't need it, exactly when I don't want it because wet cows with cold wind is not a fun situation.
1: Right. You mentioned earlier, and of course we've talked about the water. So you have a lot of water coming down, but Getting water to animals is always an issue. So how are you watering your cattle?
0: Our main property, the one we originally bought in 2016, that is a 32-acre pasture is what we own. And originally, I just ran just polyethylene pipe, one-inch polyethylene pipe on the surface of the ground to pipe it to three different parts on the farm. And then from there, I had basically originally i had rigid lanes that ran back to the water points and then when i cut off the cows with my poly braid on reels i would just raise the wire up and they'd go underneath it and they'd run back you know they'd go back to the water that worked okay but the problem is 50% of your manure goes right to your water point it's not in your pasture where you actually want it feeding the grass and so you just have this massive dead space Around your water troughs, where it serves no purpose. It makes flies, you know, you have horrible fly problems because you can't get the animals away from the manure ever. In 2020, yeah, 2020, rented a skid steer with a trencher, and I actually trenched in almost 5,000 feet of water line on our main farm here. And the nice thing about that is off of our farm, we have an additional 30 acres here, but we have another additional 25 acres that we lease that I was able to run the water points right up next to and along those pasture lines. So that way I put in multiple, you're familiar with the Plasson connectors? Yes. The full flows, yeah. So I, I pipe those in under the ground. Everything's down 40 to 36 inches to be below frost line. And then I have the a six-inch Schedule 40 PVC pipe riser, essentially, that comes up to the ground surface. And I'm able to basically reach a hose down in that hole and plug it into the on quick connector so that way i have cold water that's not warm <laughs> Well, cows don't like warm water and that was the other thing that i always struggled with with the with the water piped on the surface is when they're drinking 100 degree water they're miserable but then because they're piped in everywhere i'm able to constantly be moving waters with them so that we don't have fly problems because we're constantly moving the cows ahead and Secondly, we don't have dead space. Thirdly, all the manure goes in the pastures instead of just around the water trough. There's no loafing. I mean, for a 100-head herd, 90-head, well, or somewhere in there. You guys know how it is. We water the whole herd with just a 25-gallon trough, essentially, with a job valve plugged into it. So, yeah, that's what we're doing on the main farm. And it's all, of course, uphill too. So our farm is, our house is down on the ground and it's like, man, I wish I would have put an inch and a half pipe up that hill. It would have helped a lot more with the with pressure, but it's fine. So then on the other farms that we graze on, we have, one is a creek that goes through it. And so at the creek, we generally try to fence them out of the creek, but we leave some access points to it. And the creek, I've only seen it go dry like three times since we've lived here. So it's very rare that that happens. It did happen one time last year, but I just didn't graze it when I don't have water over there. A different farm, we have a big pond in the center of it, and what I did is I put a solar system together to not only power the fence with a SpeedRite 6J charger, but also I put on a timer switch connected to bilge pumps down into the pond, and for that 25-acre pasture, I was able to build two water points off that pond. And the timer switch basically just overflows the tank once an hour, and the water flows back to the pond at an area where the cows don't walk in it, essentially. So you've got two water points on 25 acres. It's not ideal, but it's the best that I can do without pressurized water water in that system situation. Or, you know, I could always get a trailer and tote water around, but that's that's a lot of work.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that pump you put in the pond
0: put together a system, and I I overbuilt it, to be honest. I could have got away with probably 200 watts of solar panels, but I put together 600 watts of solar panels, putting it into a deep cycle marine battery through a solar charge controller, obviously. And then from there, Amazon, they've got like these, I think they're like $12 or something. It's just simple. It's called a JVC timer switch. And in there, you can program it to turn on for a set amount of time, up to 24 different periods in a day. So essentially every hour, I just turn it on for about 10 minutes. And what works great about that is you're able to even keep it frost-free in the wintertime. So it turns on the water to overflow, but to explain the water system coming from the bilge pump, it's just a $20 bilge pump off Amazon. If they go bad, I can just climb out in the pond with my waders on and switch it out. It's not a big deal. You know, you're your electric wire out there is not going to go bad, but anyway, so you put the bilge pump about twenty-four-ish inches down in the water, so that way it's not going to freeze in the winter time. At least in my climate, it's not. And then also, you're not getting the muck from the bottom of the pond; you're getting the clean water in the center. So then, from there, the pipe goes to the shore, and at that point, you've got to dig down. So I took a guy with an excavator came and he dug some trenches from the edge of the pond, and we buried the water line. 36 inches deep at the edge of the pond all the way up to the tanks and so at the tank the water level essentially when it stops pumping it drops back down in the water line to this to the level of the pond which at that point is like four feet below the soil so it's frost free i mean it cannot freeze there's no place ever that that, that can freeze in the winter time and so it just comes up goes into the tank and then you just have an outlet port on the side of the tank on the downhill side hopefully you can have it protected by some wires or you could even put you know a four inch drain pipe down back to the pond so that way it keeps the water out of the way so you're not creating a mud situation
1: you described it there but i'm like how do you keep it from freezing even even every hour pushing it through but it's draining back into the pond you got the right elevation on stuff so that all the lines able to drain out, basically.
0: Essentially, this is the pond down here. This is your tank up here. You dig a trench down at the le- at the level of the pond, so your pipe is down here. Okay, so it's thirty six inches or more below the ground level here. So when the water drains down the pipe, it drains back down to the pond level, and it can't freeze.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Now, do you did you build a cage around your pump? I didn't. Haven't had issues with it yet. I'm asking, I need to do something like that on one of my lease properties. I'm just overthinking it. Tell us a little bit about the way you put up your fences, perimeter, as well as your internal, and just a little plug. I think I saw on your website, you're doing timeless fence, timeless post.
0: Yep. So timeless is the fifth and final version of the type of fences I've tried to build. So first fence I ever built had wood H braces. And it was a three-wire fence with just T-posts and then your standard T-post insulators on them. They came into donut insulators on the, on the H-braces, the corner posts there. H-braces do not work in my context. We have all clay soil, and I explained all the water that we get in the wintertime. So what do you think happens to all those H-braces that first winter? Right out of the ground. So my next version was trying to go, well, if H-braces won't work... And by the way, I concreted them in with rebar and everything like... Oh, yes. The concrete pops right out of the ground. It was terrible. Yeah. The next thing I tried to do was going all T-posts and using... Oh, I can't even remember the name of them. They're like an aluminum clip wedge lock. I think that's the name of them, where they go together with T-posts. The wedge lock works well, except it's just expensive. I mean, you've got five T-posts, you know, and then your wedge lock anchors which, I mean, it, it's like $100 a corner in, well, maybe not 100 maybe like 70 or $80 a corner putting them in. And that's even expensive. Sure, it's about on par with building an H-brace. It's easier than building an H-brace. But then you have to contend with making sure you have the insulators just right because you have your braces coming down for those wedge lock corners and your wire sometimes touches them, sometimes doesn't. It's like, it's just... There's nothing worse than having your wire touch a T-post and grounding your whole system and you cannot find it because you're trying to search around 30 acres because I didn't know about fall finders at the time. I know about fall finders now. They're great. Anyways, so that that was version number two. Then version number three was upgrading to an inch and a half fiberglass sucker rod and just pounding that in and then using a duckbill earth anchor. They put tension on the fence in that way you're supposed to be able to apply like 4,000 pounds of pressure to them. Well, the problem again, in my soil, I could not get them deep enough. I mean, I would have had to stink and get a jackhammer to get them down there. I mean, pounding away with a T-post driver and a sledgehammer on those earth anchors, I just can't get them down into my, into my clay soil far enough. So that was version number three Version number four then went, well, if the direct-built earth anchor doesn't work, I wonder if I can just drive a T-post down. So I took a four and a half foot T-post, and if this is your, my pencil here, sorry for listeners, you got your pencil, which is your post, you know, your corner post, end post, whatever it is, and then you take a T-post and you drive it down at a diagonal 45 degrees, about two, three, four feet behind the corner post. Then I was able to attach a guy wire to the top of that T-post right before driving it all the way into the soil. So that T-post is buried six inches. That drove in my situation. So I'm able to get a T-post in. That worked. So that was essentially version five. Now that I'm a timeless, I upgraded to timeless. I just use the timeless H-posts and now I can build completely insulated fences using my anchor with the T-post, and essentially I can get a corner in for 50 bucks. That There's no cheaper way to do it, in my opinion, that's going to hold up as long, look as nice, and never have a situation where my fence can ground out. So I'm 100% sold on timeless. T-posts I didn't like because deer go through them, they break, you know, your fence is dead. Wood is just too hard if you don't have tools. So then I tried pasture pro posts from Ken Cove, which they're just almost too flexible they're going to bend and they look terrible. They don't have any rigidity to them. So then I tried going with fiberglass, with half inch fiberglass. Those are fine, except the clips that hold the wire onto fiberglass are horrible for deer country, which is where we're at. I mean, it's no, if I went out to my pastures, I probably have 30, 30 deer in one of my pastures out here. I mean, they're just all over the place. So they knock the wire off the fiberglass rods. So it's like, well, I need something that's going to hold the wire in. And then I saw Greg Judy at that point talking about timeless. And I'm like, well, what the heck? Timeless is, that's great. There's already holes in them for me. I don't have to do anything. And they're semi-rigid. Let's try them out. And I tried some out, fell in love, found out there's no, uh, there was no dealership in my county for timeless. So I applied to do that. And now I'm a timeless dealer. I wouldn't go back. I mean, I put in 72 acres of fencing last year. If I'm, I mean, calculating this on retail costs for everything, buying a 32-joule Cyclops charger, going all out with it, with how I install my fencing, it costs me less than $1.25 a foot to install 72 acres, a uh, three-wire. I mean, I could have put a four-wire in, and that's not going to cost that much more. So yeah, so that's what I do. I mean, generally, we install either a two- or a three-wire perimeter fence for the cattle. We use all timeless, timeless H posts for corners that are anchored in the ground using a guy wire to the T-post, and then you're generally we're using five five or five and a half foot inch and three quarter posts from Timeless.
1: I just purchased a few Timeless posts. Well, Greg Judy's grazing school, I purchased a few up there to try. Okay. I've got some pasture pro and I've used fiberglass rods for corner posts, which on my straight runs, and it, if I'm able to do straight runs, fiberglass at the end, I'm good here, except I've noticed those Pasture Pro posts just are not rigid enough. I hook a poly wire to it and run it an eighth of a mile, and I stretch it too tight, and my poe is leaning then. I've got one poe where the elevation change, it goes up over a pond dam, and I've got to get up there. The cows don't bother it, so I've been lazy about it, but I've got to brace
0: that up so it will stand up straight know exactly what you're talking about. That's why I switched to timeless because you don't have that. They stay straight. Going through ditches, you know, because you go to a ditch, say you got to cross a creek with your perimeter fence. It's like one on the top, two on the bottom, one on the top. And, you know, pasture pros, they bend. Fiberglass bends. T-posts are fine, but you're going to, you know, first flood comes through, it's going to rip that T-post insulator off. The timeless solves that 100% because everything's right there. They'll bend over if they need to. I mean, they're great. Drop a tree on that fence line. As long as you catch it within a couple of weeks and you cut the tree off, your fence pops right back up and all you have to do is go to your, you know, your strainer and tighten the fence a little bit because obviously your wire's going to stretch a little bit. Right. But it makes management so much easier having posts that can handle the use and abuse of not only your farm, but also of all the wildlife that's out there and, and all the crazy things that can happen with floods, with trees you name it. And then for interior fencing, it's just a single wire for cattle. You know, We do have some pasture-raised pigs, pasture pork, we do a little bit. But for that, I just stick another poly braid around the bottom to give them a two wire for where they're at at the time. But yeah, interior fencing paddocks, we split them about, I try to make pastures about 15 acres with perimeter and permanent. And then from there, I subdivide to give the cattle one to three to four acres a day. It just depends on what the forage level is and, and what their needs are.
1: You mentioned some pastured pork. So what are you doing with pork?
0: How long have you been running some pigs? We've been doing pigs for five years. And it just, in our market, for what I can sell pigs, it's very hard for me to sell pigs at my pricing. I mean, essentially, if we're just talking bulk pricing, not even, you know, doing USDA individual cuts, we're averaging, I try to get $5 a pound before butcher costs, because that's, really where I need to be to be profitable at it. And it is is It's so hard to sell them. I mean, it's hard to sell 10 pigs a year. We're kind of going to stop back, stop doing that just because people don't realize that when you raise pasture pigs, if you want them to be mostly forage fed, it doesn't matter what breed you have, you're going to be raising them for a year. Then because of that, your feed cost doesn't go down. It actually almost doubles. You know, so if you raise a pig in a barn, you can raise a pig for $350 of just feed. But raising on pasture, you have an entire year into them and probably probably about $500 a feed is what I've found just to get them to market size. And it's like, it's a great product. It tastes awesome. I will eat no other pork than pasture-raised pork. But my pasture you know, my grass-fed beef makes money. Pasture-raised eggs make money. <laughs> my pork profit center is a lost center. So we're kind of getting away from that. I mean, we tried to start out with Idaho pasture pigs. Their litter sizes are, are very small. They're so docile, which is great for handling them, but horrible when you're trying to farrow. Farrow in sheds on pasture, they lay on their piglets and they're like, "Ah, it's a squealing piglet, no big deal." Killed half your litter last night. I don't want to farrow in farrowing crates, you know. So it's just we think we're probably going to be mostly closing out on just because I can't I can't find a way in my situation to make it work without a ton of labor into it. I mean. I'm already working with our other business, working the farm, being the sole caregiver for our kids because my wife works 70 hours a week running our other business. And it's like, yeah, pasture pigs is something that I'll, I'll leave to other people. I wouldn't claim to be an expert on it.
1: You mentioned there something I think is impressive. You're realizing that and you're saying, hey, maybe that's not something we should be doing in the future. We need to, to get back to our beef and our eggs and we're good there we've got enough other irons in the fire my wife's always after me because i have too many irons in the fire and i've talked about reducing some of those i'm just always like oh well i really hate to so i think that is a a very mature decision to say hey this is not working for me and taking that as a business Looking at it from a business viewpoint and not another viewpoint. Oh, I like doing it, So I'm just going to continue. To be honest, that's where my goats are. I like the goats. I'm not making enough money with the goats, but I like them. And and my wife says maybe they should be on the short list to go somewhere else. I hear they taste like lamb, even if you butcher them when they're old. I enjoy goat. I enjoy lamb. My wife does not so much. You know, that philosophy of eat all you can and sell the rest. I just can't eat very much by myself. Yeah, it's always a problem. Caleb, it's about time we move to our overgrazing section. And for our overgrazing section, we take a little bit deeper dive into what you're doing on your operation. And today, I think we're going to talk about bell grazing and winter hay feeding. And if someone that's getting as much snow as you are can
0: do it, that means a lot of other people can too. It's definitely something that took a lot of time i mean the first year we had our cattle we tried to keep them basically in a sacrifice paddock and feed hay across of of feed gates and i mean mud covered cold cattle doesn't matter if you keep the wind off of them they're miserable after that first that was when we first got the herd to a, a large number you know after that first winter it's like we're not doing this again we need to keep our animals on pasture and be able to move them so we don't get inundated, that we don't get the cattle inundated with mud. And so, the first year we tried to do bale unrolling. Well, I quickly found out it's not great when your ground is soaked. You know, if you have clay-based soils, it's almost impossible to unroll hay unless the ground is frozen. So, we started two years ago setting up bales and doing bale grazing. And it's a little bit, you know, I'd love to get to the point where... I have enough hay to waste that I can just open the cows up to a two weeks worth of hay and just let them go at it because if I do, if you do that, you have to feed them an additional 30-40% because they waste so much and they lay on it, which is fine because really, it's not waste. So, I apologize about saying that because the whole point of bale grazing is that you're probably going to lose 30% of that bale to the ground, but it's okay because... Give it a year and a half, and that pasture is going to produce three times what it did before. At this point, what we do is we set up, and I'm excited for this next year because I finally have some people, balers, that are going to be using sis- sisal twine on my bales. But anyways, in the past, we set up the bales, and we generally use net wrap is what's available around here. What's hard about that is trying to have these bales set up, move your polywires, so that you open up enough bales, generally two bales is what we go through, two four by five bales a day, and then having to roll that four by five bale to get the net wrap off. So this next year, I'm excited because about 70% of our hay is gonna be sisal twine wrapped. Cross my fingers that I can just let the cows go at it, not have any issues, but it might, it might be a problem, we don't know, we'll find out. It's not hard to take that stuff off. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's made such a difference. So as a, uh, you know, a testament to this. I have an 11-acre paddock that two years ago, I bail grazed the whole thing on. And, you know, your conventional farmers, you know, it was a very dry spring for most people. I know a lot of the country's even in a drought right now. We went through in May, we had the fifth longest period ever in Erie County with no rain, 21 days. Oh, crazy. Yeah. But, anyways, I mean, that's just everyone around here is like, oh, there's, you know, the hay is going to be horrible this year, so on and so forth. So, a guy bailed this 11 acres because I'm finally in a position where I have way more forage than I need because of bale grazing. And so, he bailed this 11 acres and he got almost three times the amount of, of bales off of that as he did from other 11 acre paddocks in the midst of a spring drought. You know, it's just a testament that it's like when you add all that organic matter to your soil and you give it a couple years to come back, frost seeds and clovers in there, which is what I did there. And it holds so much water that you're drought-proofed to a degree. I mean, that's really, you know, I guess kind of the thing that just blew me away the most. It's like the soil out here is wet. Plan on taking that hay that got cut off it and feeding it right back on that same exact pasture so we're not moving the nutrients around.
1: Very nice. Now, when you set up your bales for bale grazing, what kind of, did you set them up on a grid? What kind of spacing did you use? Varies.
0: I mean, honestly, I'm not even so much paying attention to that as I'm paying attention to what areas of the pasture I think need the hay more. I mean, I try to make sure there's at least about 30 feet in between the bales. So that way, when you set up your poly wire around it, there's enough space for the cattle to kind of loaf around that bale. And not be knocking a polywire over because that's happened before. Probably I'd say about 30 feet is what I try to try to space just to make sure that they're not going to try to eliminate as much as possible the chance that a polywire goes down.
1: And you mentioned quite a bit just in a real short span about bell grazing. But if someone was out there thinking, hey, I'm going to try bell grazing this year, you have some words of wisdom for them?
0: If you've never done bell grazing, make sure you have... Different areas that you can move the cows to that you're going to be able to get them out of, say, a big snowstorm coming. So, for an example, this last winter, right at Christmas time, December 23rd through the 27th, we had a crazy polar vortex where there was winds whipping through at about 30 miles an hour, nonstop, sustained, 20 to 30 miles an hour. And it was negative two. So, wind chill factor is negative 30. And that sustained beating on cattle in an open pasture is not going to work. I mean, you're going to lose calves. I mean, for us, we don't wean our calves. We don't separate the herd. It's one herd. So you've got your young ones. You've got your old ones. You've got your steers, everything all together. And your young ones are going to suffer and you're probably going to lose some if you try to force them to stay out there. So for us, we have different areas where we can get hay close to it so that when we know that weather's going to come, we can set up the bale grazing for them at that point. So that's what, you know, I guess I'd say be aware of. Don't be so rigid that you're going to set up your whole entire maze of bales on your farm for the whole winter and then weather changes and you're like, crap, what do I do? Make sure you have some second plans for when, when inclement weather comes and you got to get a windbreak for your cattle.
1: Great advice, great advice. Caleb? It's time for us to go ahead and move to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question is, what is your favorite grazing grass related book
0: or resource? One, I'd say learning about holistic management, holistic management hub from the Savory Institute, whether that's, I mean, up here in Pennsylvania, it's going to be Eli Mack down at Mack Farms is starting Regensylvania, which will be a Savory hub. That's going to be an incredible resource for people. The other resource is is really, if you have time, watch some Greg Judy videos. I mean, I'm sure that's been said a hundred times. I mean, he has so much invaluable resources put on YouTube. The biggest thing that changed on my farm from him is really just like leasing. Go out and, and make friends with people. And then, you know, to elaborate on that leasing thought a little bit, and you know, kind of looking at Greg Judy, but also Steve Kenyon up at uh, Greener Pastures Ranching. I was down at the Polyface grazing—I don't know—it wasn't grazing school. It's the Grass Farmer Gathering at Polyface this last fall, and Steve Kenyon was down there, and you know, talking with him. And something that he brought up was, you know, what are your resources? What are you rich in? Are you rich in the ability to talk with people? Because that is invaluable, and that helps you get leases all the time. So, and then really the last one that's kind of changed over the last well six months as i'm going into building a handling facility for our cattle so that we can separate things out a lot easier is doing humane livestock reading humane livestock handling by temple grandin it's just it's fantastic the things that you'd never think of until reading that book so if people are thinking about different ways to handle their livestock especially around sorting livestock, read the the Humane Livestock Handling book by Temple Grandin. I agree. That's an
1: excellent choice choices there, but I really enjoyed that Temple Grandin book as well. Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your farm?
0: The tool that that I use the most would be a side-by-side. We have a Kubota RTV-900. I mean, that is just awesome because it has a diesel it's reliable it's powerful it's got a lot of torque and it carries a ton in the bed so for my step in posts you got minerals with you we feed you know apple cider vinegar all the time to the cattle so it takes totes of that it's just an invaluable tool i'd say my favorite tool though would be the steel combi unit i don't know if you have one of those but if you're looking to clear your fence line get yourself a steel combi unit so you can put a scythe or a a star bit blade on it That's a, that's a good tool.
1: Yeah. Very good. Very good. I always love it when we get some new answers on here. You know, it's really easy to go with some of these tried and true, you know, polywire gives us capability to do so much without it, but I love getting some other answers that I don't think about on here. Our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started?
0: That's kind of what I tell people. I mean, obviously, as we talked earlier, it's so important to just jump in with both feet but jumping in with both feet has probably cost me close to two hundred thousand dollars oh
1: yeah well if you've got someone there telling you jump in with both feet here as opposed
0: to over there correct yeah it could go a little better Mm -hmm. i mean there's so many resources in the regenerative farming movement in you know grass-fed cattle you know how to produce that it just makes so much sense to hire a consultant. I mean, they're not that expensive, $75 an hour. Have them come out for three hours, walk your farm, talk, have them put together a plan. You might have 500 bucks into having someone say, this is where you should start. These are the things to pay attention to. This is the type of fencing you should build. This is where your water points are. I mean, it's so easy. I know Joel Salatin said it a ton of times, you know, all his experience building Polyface Farm Now, when he leases these new big farms, they're able to go in there and make it a flourishing enterprise within a year instead of 10 years, just because they have experience. So hiring a consultant is really what I do tell people, that you need to get someone that knows what they're doing to give you a plan and to help you develop a plan for your specific context. Because you can't just go on YouTube and watch all these videos and think that you can just implement what somebody does on their ranch to your ranch. It's not the same. And lastly, Caleb, where can others find out more about you? Follow us on Facebook or Instagram, Deer Run Acres, LLC. We also have our website, www.deerrunacres.com. Those are really the, the best places to, to follow us. You know, I'm always willing to take a call and, and talk through stuff with people. I've done it many times. So I'd be more than happy to help anyone on their, on their journey to developing a successful farm because we need so many more of those in America these days or worldwide, really, that uh, farms that are resilient and that uh, can produce food that's healthy. Well said. Yes.
1: Caleb, really enjoyed conversation with you today. Thanks for coming on and joining me.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: You're listening to the Grazing Grass podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, Fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. Thank you for listening. If you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share your journey, go to grazinggrass.com. And click on Be Our Guest link. We are looking for guests for this year. So if you're interested, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support the show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way is support the show is through our patreon if you'll go over to grazinggrass.com and click on support you'll see our links there and that lists some ways you can support it but you can click on the patreon link and for a small amount a month you help support this podcast so we're able to put out more episodes and we appreciate that Also, there is a second level there if you're a beginning farmer or just getting started and you're wanting more assistance. There is a start grazing grass level there that you could subscribe to and gain more information. No matter what you choose to do, we appreciate you listening. Keep on grazing grass.